0: into a bank in Germany, and he's got on all black black clothes, black shirt, black pants. He's wearing a hat, baseball cap, pulled down real low, and he has on sunglasses. Walks into the bank, walks up to a teller, threatens her with a knife, and then quickly leaves the bank uh, with 2,500 euros. 2,500 euros is about 3,300 dollars. The guy robs the bank, gets away, leaves. Not too long after this, the police release an article in the paper with a description of this guy who robbed the bank. And the description they have is uh, from a security camera that they kind of watched and they studied and they, they try to figure out how big this guy was and, and other features that could describe him. And this is what they posted in the paper male, between 180 and 185 centimeters in height, age 20 to 25, with short short dark hair, and the teller also told them that the guy spoke with a southern Bavarian German accent. So we obviously have no clue what centimeters are. But this means that this guy, he's a guy, first part of the description, he's in his low to mid-twenties, and he's somewhere between 5'10 and 6 foot, which is a whole lot of people. He's got short, dark hair. He speaks with a southern German accent. The police also determined that this guy fled the scene on foot with the money. Apparently, this criminal didn't think that their police work was good enough and not too long after this article was released he sent the police an email the email address was rauber von rutingen at web.de web.de is kind of like yahoo or hotmail the first part of the address is the german word for robber it means robber from rutingen which is this city in southern germany so now just from the guy's email address which They're very smart. They know where he's from, where he lives. Then he gives them more information. He says that he's not in his low to mid 20s. He's actually 19. And he's not between 185 and 180 centimeters. He's 193 centimeters. And for some reason or another, he felt like where he lives now isn't enough. He also told them where he was born. He was born in the city of Württemberg. And then, the police said he left on foot, and he says, no, that's not what happened. I got in a car, a red Mercedes 190, and I drove to the train station parking garage where the car is right now, where I left it, and I took a train somewhere. And he ends the email like this. For your information, Hamburg is great. Obviously not a very smart criminal. Within three hours, three hours of getting this email, the police pick him up in Hamburg. All the information he gives him, not to mention the fact that uh, his email address can be traced, led them right to where he was. They knew exactly what he looked like, and they had pictures of him because he told them where he lived and where he was from and where he was going. Unbelievable. All because this police force, because the guy actually was a good criminal before he got away with it, uh, because they had these details wrong, I don't know if this guy's pride or his arrogance or or what takes over, but because they get these things wrong, he taunts the police. He essentially says in this email that if you couldn't get this description right, there's no way you're going to catch me. Even if I give you all this extra information. You don't have the power, you don't have the ability to find me, to track me down and catch me. Of course we know that they do have the ability and they prove it by putting the guy in handcuffs and taking him away. Just because this guy didn't think that they could do it, he had the arrogance to doubt them. We're going to see a similar thing happen in our text tonight. We're going to see three groups of people. We're going to see this uh, paralyzed man and his friends, who they come to Jesus, these, these friends of this paralyzed man carry him to Jesus because they believe, they have faith, that Jesus can actually do something for their friend. It's the first group. The second group is the scribes. The scribes don't think that Jesus can, can do what Jesus claims that he can do. Jesus is going to say something in our text tonight, and these guys are going to say, "You can't do that. Only God can do that." And then the third group is just the rest of the people there, the crowd. And at the end of our passage, we're going to see that this crowd uh, seems to respond the right way to what Jesus does. So let's read our passage, and then we'll we'll jump into the details of it. The, the passage we're reading tonight is Matthew chapter nine, verses one through seven. If you don't have a Bible, there's some at the end of the rows, and you'll find tonight's passage in those Bibles, uh, starting on page 813. Matthew 9, verse 1. And getting into a boat... Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. The main point of this passage And really, this passage and the one we're going to cover next week, which is kind of a more focused look at Jesus' mission. The main point is that Jesus came to forgive sin and to transform sinners. Jesus came to earth in spite of everything that we see him doing. We know that the most important aspect of his mission is that Jesus came to forgive sinners forgive sin and transform sinners, to do both of those things, and that's what we see him doing tonight, that's what we're going to see him doing next week. As we've looked at Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Matthew so far, there have been a couple times where we've seen Jesus do things like heal or, or cast out demons, and when he's done some of those things, he's told people not to tell anyone about it, he's told them to be quiet, and when we've seen that, I've said that what we see happening there is Jesus downplaying, Jesus almost trying to hide His miraculous ministry because He doesn't want it to detract, He doesn't want it to, to distract from who He is as the Messiah, who He is as a Savior. And so when things happen like that, Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Because it's more important to Him, and it should be more important to us, that Jesus came to to forgive sin, and to transform those of us who are sinners, which is everyone. Tonight, we're going to see him do this. We're going to see this fleshed out in the text. We're going to see where, where Jesus kind of does a healing. He does a miraculous thing. But as he does that, he only actually heals the guy because it testifies to who he is it proves that he has the authority to actually carry out his mission. Let's look at verse 1. Matthew tells us that Jesus gets into the boat, he crosses over the Sea of Galilee, and he comes to his own city. This is just kind of the conclusion to last week's story that we covered. Last week, you remember, Jesus kind of heals these two demon-possessed guys. He casts the demons into the pigs. The pigs go down into the water. The townspeople hear about it, and they're upset. They come out to where Jesus is and they say, Jesus, we want you to go. Tonight we see that Jesus does that. He complies with their request. Now because he has to, because he wants to, he gets back in the boat, he goes back across the sea, and he ends up in Capernaum, which is where he's from. Now the text doesn't tell us this, but I imagine that after this incident with the storm, at least some of the disciples were thinking, we're already getting back in the boat. But they do, and apparently nothing happens on the way back. This brings us to verse 2, where Matthew tells us, Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, as we've been studying Matthew up to this point, I hope that at least some of you have noticed that when Matthew tells stories, especially when he tells those stories that are really, really familiar to us from the gospel. Matthew leaves out details. He leaves out what we might think are some of the better parts of the story. Like here in this story, Mark and Luke tell us all about this guy's friends, right? These guys come, they're carrying their friend on the mat. This house that Jesus is in is, is just packed, so they can't get in. And Mark and Luke tell us that they climb up on the roof, they make a hole in the roof, and they lower their friend down into the room that Jesus is in. Now, we've we've heard that story taught. We've probably heard something like, oh, look at how great these guys are. Look at how important it is to them that they get their friend to Jesus so he can get healing, so he can get get what he needs. We should be like them, right? We should be like them and get people to Jesus. Matthew says, no, that's not important. And I think that Matthew doesn't do that because we know, at least we're going to find out next week, that Matthew is a tax collector. He's uh, an accountant type. And so for him, he probably knows exactly how much he's spending on paper, on papyrus. He laughed, but it was expensive. That's why we don't have a big, long, huge... Uh, Letters from a whole bunch of different people. You might be thinking, we do have really long letters. But they're not. Matthew has to think about what is it that I need to communicate to people as I'm writing my gospel? What are the most important things? John himself tells us that books upon books upon books upon books couldn't contain everything that Jesus said and did. And so we know that they had to be selective about what they Right about. And, you know, this isn't really in the passage, but a little point of application here is the fact that for us, it's easy to publish our thoughts to the world, right? You get a blog, get Facebook, get Twitter, and instantly put what we think about Jesus out in the world for everyone to see. It's a good thing, right? To use technology rightly. But sometimes, I think, maybe we could be a little bit more like Matthew and think about what we really want to say before we just post it. So Matthew doesn't tell us about these guys. He doesn't tell us about the paralytic and his friends. He instead just tells us that they show up where Jesus is, and he tells us what happens. He says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. So Matthew is far more concerned about what Jesus does than what the friends do. But he still mentions the fact that Jesus saw their faith, right? He didn't just see the, the faith of the paralyzed man. I think that the, the there, it's, it's the whole group. It's not just the friends. It's not just the guy. It's all of them. They all have faith in who Jesus is, and that's why they're coming there, right? You don't climb up on a building and dig a hole in a roof just because you think that the person inside might be able to do something. They do that because they've heard about Jesus. They've heard about what Jesus can do and, and who He is. And so they take their friend there, and the friend wants them to take Him there so that He can get healed. But then Jesus kind of shifts gears a little bit here, Right? might be surprising to us. Because if we took a group of people to Jesus, like they do, wanting our friend to be healed, and then instead of saying, get up and walk, he says, your sins are forgiven, what's, what's going on there? Why, why does Jesus say that to this man? He's never said anything like this so far in Matthew. When somebody comes, he doesn't talk about sin. He talks about healing. I think that it's important here for us to to stop real quick and to talk about the relationship between sickness and sin. Now, I'm going to throw out some statements that might sound alarming at first or heretical, but I'll explain them. When we think about the relationship between sickness, illness, disease, whatever you want to call it, and sin... Which, as I was writing this sermon, my house is sick. My wife and my kids are sick. And so I was thinking about these things as I was writing them. All sickness, all disease, all illness, all human health problems are caused by sin. Now, some of you are thinking, wait a second. That sounds a lot like something that a health, wealth, and prosperity preacher would say. He would say that if, if we just have enough faith, if we just if we just believe, we won't ever get sick. And I'm saying that sickness is caused by sin. And it is. The Bible teaches that. But, this is where the qualification comes in. All sickness, all human disease, genetic disorders, uh, handicappedness, whatever. It's all caused by sin, at least indirectly, in the sense that before Genesis 3, before the fall, before death, corruption, decay, everything bad comes into the human race, God says we're good, we're well, we're we're healthy, we don't have problems. There's no problems with childbirth or barrenness or anything like that until Genesis 3, then all of a sudden, all these things creep into the human race. And so everything, no matter what it is, no matter whether it's uh, a common cold, or uh, diabetes, or alcoholism, or, or some horrible genetic defect, all of it is caused by the fall. We can trace everything back to Genesis 3. So all sickness is caused, at least indirectly, by sin sin in general. But, some sickness is caused by specific sin. So let me just give you an example of this. Say a guy goes out to a bar and he drinks and he gets drunk. Gets in his car, gets on the road, drives home, wraps his car around a telephone pole and is paralyzed. Right? Right? His paralysis is caused by sin, by specific sin, by him choosing to drive drunk. You can think of hundreds upon hundreds of examples of that, of of some specific sin causing some specific health problem. Now we might be tempted to think, sure, that's for people who do the really bad things, the bad sinners, not me. My sickness isn't caused by sin, right? Right? What about stress? Stress can cause, and not all stress is sinful, but a lot of it probably is. Stress can cause heart problems, skin problems, stomach problems, even acne, right, can be caused by stress. Acne can be a result of sin. Specific sin, worrying about some situation instead of giving it to God and trusting Him. So all sin, no matter what it is, all sickness, no matter what it is, no matter how bad it is or how light it is, is caused by sin, at least indirectly. But some things are going to be caused by specific sin. This is where we pick up in this passage tonight. This is why Jesus, I think, looks at this man. And instead of saying, you're healed, get up. He says, take heart. He's telling him to be encouraged. To be enheartened, To be happy about what Jesus is doing. He says, your sins are forgiven. So I think, there's no way of knowing for sure. But I think that this guy at least felt which a lot of the people in this day did, that his paralysis was caused by something he or someone else had done. You see the same thing in John. This guy's blind, and the disciples asked Jesus, is his blindness caused by his sin or his parents' sin? Where, where, where did it come from? And here, I think this guy was feeling the weight of guilt over... Something that had happened or something that he had thought caused it. And Jesus says, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Jesus looks at this guy and he sees two problems. The first problem is the fact that he's paralyzed. Right? That's the obvious problem. The second problem he sees is that this guy is a sinner. We all have that problem. No matter whether we're paralyzed or not. And Jesus, when he looks at this man is that that is the most important problem. That, that's the thing that he needs to address. And so that's what he does. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And then in verse 3, we get to see how at least some of the crowd responds. Matthew tells us that some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blasphemy. Now blasphemy probably not a word we use on a regular basis, is saying something that demeans God. The word kind of means slander, and it's saying something slanderous about God. Here, what Jesus is doing, and how these scribes perceive it, is that Jesus is saying that he can do something that only God can do. He's saying your sins are forgiven. So he's making himself to be God, which is what he's doing. I mean, that's that's exactly what he's doing. But the scribes see it, and they think, that's blasphemy. look at how Jesus responds. Knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Now, some people want to read this and say, what Jesus does here really isn't anything special. They're in a house. They're in a crowded room. These these scribes hear what he's saying, and they, they get upset about it. Jesus would have seen that commotion. Just like if I said something crazy, at least some of you would react to it physically. You'd shift. You'd turn to the person next to you and say, did he really just say this? And so I would notice, okay, those, those people back there didn't like what I just said. And so some people want to say that that's exactly what Jesus does. He, he hears them. He sees them. That, that's how he knows what's going on. And he may have. But the problem with what they say is what Jesus says. Jesus asks them, why do you think evil in your hearts? Jesus doesn't question them about their outward reaction to what he said. He questions them about what goes on in their hearts. He questions them about the motive of their hearts. He knows that what is going on in the inside is they are thinking evil against him. And that's what he calls them on. So it's impossible for us to look at this passage and not see Jesus doing something here that's supernatural. He's doing something that a guy who's just a man couldn't possibly do. There's no way for me to know what goes on in your hearts. And there's no way for you to know what goes on in my heart. We can't do that. I don't have that power. Jesus does because he's not just a man. And then he asked them another question. He says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk? Now, obviously, Jesus isn't talking about which phrase is easier to pronounce, which phrase is physically easier to say. He's not talking about that. There's really two options, right? One phrase can be the easier thing to say, or, or the other one can Now for us, modern, probably more skeptical people, we think that the harder thing to say is get up and walk, right? I can walk around Hannibal all day long announcing forgiveness to people, right? I can walk up to somebody I've never met before and say, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Because there's no way of proving that. There's no way to prove whether or not I have actually gotten that person forgiveness. I haven't, obviously, but there's no way to prove it. But if I walk up to somebody who can't walk and say, get up and walk, there is empirical scientific evidence of whether or not they actually get up and walk. We can see that happen, right? We can see them do what we ask them to do. And so for us, with our, our skeptical minds who are suspicious in doubt, it's far easier for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven. But that wouldn't have been the case for the Jews. See, the Jews grew up with a different mindset, a different worldview. For them, they, they look at the world differently than we do. They don't have any problem accepting the supernatural. They have long lists of people in their history. Moses, Aaron, Elijah, Elisha, and a whole lot of other people who they've heard stories about their whole life doing these miraculous things. And they believe them. But in that long list of of people who have worked miracles, there's not one person, not one single person who ever announced forgiveness to someone. There wasn't anybody that ever did that. Because they couldn't. The only way they could offer forgiveness under the Old Testament law was to point to a sheep or a goat or some other sacrifice. Moses and Aaron and Elijah and Elisha, they couldn't just walk up to someone and offer them forgiveness. They didn't have that ability. And so for the Jews, it's far easier for Jesus to say, get up and walk and your sins are forgiven. Because they believed that healing could take place. They didn't believe that he could offer forgiveness. And verse 6 shows us what Jesus does. He, He proves to the scribes that he has the authority to do both things. Verse 6 says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said then to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowds saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Matthew tells us that the crowds were afraid. kind of means something along the lines of reverence. They had reverence. The, uh, some Bibles use awe there. And I think that that kind of softens it too much for us. Because we don't really get this concept of reverence like the Jews did. For us, you know, we're never, I don't think, afraid of God. Now, I'm not talking about us walking around being afraid that God is going to like smite us or strike us with lightning. I'm not talking about that kind of fear. The Jews weren't afraid of God's punishment. They were afraid because they knew who God was. They knew his character, the qualities, the, the power that he possessed. And they had seen in their history what happens when that power breaks out against Someone doesn't go well for us when that happens. It doesn't go well for for those of us who are unholy when what is holy comes against us. And so the Jews didn't just fear punishment. They had a fearful respect of God because of who He was. And that's exactly what happens here. When Jesus offers this man forgiveness, these guys accuse Jesus of blasphemy. Then, he offers this guy healing, and the guy gets up. They know that Jesus possesses a power that only God possesses, right? Because if he really was guilty of blasphemy, would he have been able to heal him? God wouldn't have honored Jesus with being able to heal this man if he had just blasphemed him. It doesn't work that way. The fact that Jesus can heal him proves that he can do the first thing that he said he was going to do. He can forgive his sins. It's exactly what Matthew tells us happens. These people respond with this this fearful respect of God, this fearful respect of Jesus, because he has the power that God has. Matthew tells us that they glorified God because he had given this authority to man. While the crowds don't see this, we as Matthew's readers do, right? We can see this text and know that even though they glorify God, even though they praise God because he's given this authority to men, we know that Given this authority to someone who's not just a man. We know that Jesus has this power because he's not just a man. And so we should praise God like they do, that he's given this authority to Jesus. But Jesus has this authority not just because he's a man, but because he's the Son of God and he's the Messiah. And this is his mission. He was sent not just to heal, but also to forgive sin. clear place, like I said earlier, where Jesus is healing. What what He does. This miraculous ministry that He has. The only purpose of it here is to prove the real thing that He came to do. He came to forgive sin and transform sinners. And obviously there are other purposes. It was a good thing for this man to be healed. Being able to walk would be better for him than not. More important than that is the fact that he's forgiven. The fact that he leaves, having his sin, whether or not it caused his sickness or not, having that forgiven would have been the most important thing to him this day. An interesting thing about this passage is that here isn't the last time that Jesus is charged with blasphemy. In fact, Blasphemy is the last thing that Jesus is charged with. Blasphemy is the the thing that the Jews finally think they catch Jesus in. Because He tells them that He's the Son of Man. He tells them that He's the Messiah. He tells them that He's the Son of God. All true things. But they see it as blasphemy. And that's what they finally hand Jesus over to Pilate for in Matthew 26. But the Jews we know, aren't the only person or people responsible for what happens to Jesus. Jesus tells Pilate himself, he says, you wouldn't have this authority over me unless it was given to you by God. Jesus tells Pilate that that he's only there. He's only accepting this false accusation this is what he's supposed to do. It's, it's the mission that God has for him. And so there, Just like here, we see Jesus accomplishing His mission to forgive sin and transform sinners. That's what He's doing. That's why He allows Himself to be crucified. That's why He allows Himself to be killed. He does that because His acts on the cross and His resurrection, His death, the way He dies, that's what purchases this forgiveness that He offers this guy in Matthew 9. If if Jesus doesn't go to the cross... If Jesus doesn't finish His mission there, then then what He offers this guy here isn't going to last. Because He's going to sin again. unless Jesus dies, unless He bears the penalty that you and I deserve for, for all of our sins, in the past, in the present, in the future, unless He does that, we don't have forgiveness. can offer that to us because his life and his death and his resurrection prove that he has accomplished his mission. Just like him being able to heal this guy proves that he had the authority to forgive sin, his resurrection proves that God honors what he does in his life and death. It vindicates him. And it tells us that we really do have forgiveness. Thank you that you sent your Son to forgive sin, to transform us who are sinners, and that even though we didn't deserve it, and even though we would have accused him just like the Jews, you sent him to purchase our pardon. Help us tonight, no matter what we're facing, whether it's sickness or sin, just a life. That you would remind us of Jesus' words.